the system needs to ROI on your service in order for the natural growth in a company to happen. Business needs to get more business. And if you're constantly having to lecture people on why what you're doing is valuable, then you're going to have a tough time growing your agency. We call this like the knowledge gap versus the efficiency gap. If you're an expert, it's really tempting to want to solve a knowledge gap. What is up, you sexy bastard? It's your boy, Connecticut, a.k.a. Rabbi Can't Lose, a.k.a. Noah Kagan. In today's episode, I talked to one of my very best friends on planet Earth, Dan Andrews. He is the host of the Tropical MBA podcast, the founder of Dynamite Jobs, and he sold his own D2C, direct-to-consumer, cat furniture business for multi-million dollars, which we talk about today. Me and Dan go way back. We live in Barcelona together every summer. We ride a lot of bikes together in spandex. We're pretty much married. Uh, I asked Dan to come on and talk about all of his experience, and Dan to me is the business philosopher. He's the true OG of remote work content. Tropical MBA, his podcast, has been one of the earliest podcasts talking about location-independent entrepreneurs, and Dynamite Circle, their online membership, is one of the earliest online communities that is connecting location-independent entrepreneurs. So if that's someone like yourself, check it out, Dynamite Circle. If you ever wanted advice on living on your own terms, thinking deeper, entrepreneurship, and just a fun convo between two friends at my house, you're going to love this episode. Here's three gigantic things you'll take away. One, Dan's definition of entrepreneurship. This is actually really fascinating. What is an entrepreneur? Dan is very thoughtful about this. Two, two, the significance of meaningful conversations and how far away are you from some of your idols? You're a lot closer than you think. And three, reflections and some regrets of when should you actually sell your business. Dan talks in detail about his, plus a bunch more juicy ear nuggets along the way. Before we dive into the show, make sure you're on my newsletter. That is Noah's Nuggets. It is three actionable things to make your week great. Go to okdork.com slash nuggets. That's okdork.com slash nuggets. Also, if you've been using Calendly or you've been wanting to use a calendar tool, check out tidycal.com. It's free or $29 for life. We built it because we hate subscriptions and we wanted a simpler product. Also, people are making six figures a year using it for people to book meetings with them. So if you want to send a link and people have to pay to meet you, maybe to get started or you're a freelancer or you're an agent or you're a coach, whatever that is, you can use that and a lot of really other neat features at tidycal.com. Also, a special pre-show shout out to listener, Mr. Boombastic, aka Shaggy. He says, the first word that come to mind when I think of Noah is action. Thank you, Shaggy, and every other one of you gorgeous listeners. If you want to shout out in a future episode, leave a review or tweet at me. Wherever you listen to this podcast, we check every single one of them. Dan Andrews, founder of the Tropical NBA podcast, Dynamite Circle, yeah. Dynamite Jobs. A lot of other stuff that failed. Oh, I don't really know all the stuff that didn't work. We'll get into that. You've been doing it 10 plus years. You have your own podcast. You guys run Dynamite Circle. It's a thousand plus member group for location independent six figure plus entrepreneurs. Yeah. Six figures is the minimum bar, but our average is higher. You have all these people. And what I've observed in it is that they're in remote areas or they don't have the community or they don't have the accountability or they want to be able to text people like, who should I use for a lawyer or who's the Facebook ads person? Yeah. I think the thing that sets us apart from a lot of the other communities is the openness. One member said at our last event, what do DCers love? Pain. Just this idea of transparency. You're going to hear someone share up there, they're going to open up with their numbers. They're just going to say, here's the numbers, here's where the sales went up, here's where they went down. There's just not this trying to impress everybody or trying to climb up to be the coolest in the room. It's a group about commiseration and the difficulty 
of growing businesses. And I think that's just kind of the vibe. So I'm curious in the current community, when you think of someone who stands out, who do you think of and what is it about them we can all learn from? There's this guy, Mark Zhang, who I was just reviewing. He's going to open up one of our conferences coming up in a few weeks. And he started this company called Manta Sleep. They're the best sleep masks in the world. Now he runs this eight-figure brand that he's proud of. It's completely changed his life. But he's willing to stand up there and be honest with himself about the moments in his life where he genuinely didn't have any idea whether he would be able to participate in that success. Like he would see people like you on YouTube and be like, what is the real distance between me and, and that outcome? And like face that down. And one of the things that Mark was really good at is asking in a way where he was always willing to risk more of his time and energy than the ask was. We hosted this event for high net worth individuals in Singapore. And he had spent a lot of time there. And so he sent this email like, look, I will help you in any way possible. Here's some venues. I'll be there and I'm going to help you make this event a success. And the email was so incredibly professional, but he shares the backstory that he was at a pretty desperate time in his entrepreneurial career, had never made any real money, but had the belief and he felt like he needed to be in the room to see what was possible. Turns out he met a multi-multi-millionaire who was an early adapter of the Amazon platform. And this is back in 2014. So basically sat Mark down and said, look, you need to take your product at the time and put it onto this Amazon platform. Here's how you're going to do it. Here's all my listings. These listings are making millions of dollars. And he's showing this guy who's volunteering his time. One thing leads to another. He gets his war chest built up. Then he goes and brands it. One thing leads to another. And there you go. Mark Sang from Man to Sleep. One of my favorite parts about running a community is like, how much time do you guys got? I can sit here for the rest of the day and tell you stories like that. Just about people being clear on the sorts of outcomes they want to achieve and then just getting in that room, figuring out a way to do something bold, to demystify it, and to start taking steps towards that outcome. I think the one thing you said that really resonated personally with me was the distance between us and other people. And I think we create much more than there really is. And there are people that are more experienced and there are people that have different knowledges that we don't have knowledges of. Yeah. Yet. But the gap is probably much smaller than we realize. And our abilities are much higher than we give ourselves credit for across yeah. the board. And the great thing about entrepreneurship, too, is you get to choose the basketball net that you're dunking on. So it's not like the NBA where you see these guys and you're like, oh, I could never compete there. You might rock up to a room and meet Noah or somebody else and be like, I don't necessarily need to be that talented. I just need to be in the arena. I can build my own basketball court and go dunk on that. And actually, that's increasingly a bigger opportunity as kind of technology takes over more traditional markets and spaces. And as everything becomes an internet business, there's even more and more low competition niches than ever. Dude, I remember talking to Justin Mayers, who used to work at AppSumo. Now he runs Kettle and Fire, Perfect Keto, and he has a new TrueMed business. And he was running this bone broth, Kettle and Fire. Yeah. And I was like, dude, you're like a marketing whiz. You worked in tech companies. Like, why are you doing bone broth? He's like, who do you think I'm competing against? <laughs> and he's like, do you think like the top minds of marketing and product packaging and all these things work at Campbell's Soup? They're probably in tech or they're in finance or in these high, super high paying jobs. So the competition is easier. One of the businesses I'm like fascinated with lately is just like lawn care because I pay for it. It's the best MRR. If I don't pay for my lawn or if I don't pay for my cleaning, like those are true MRR businesses. But we're like, oh, it's not software. You don't have to do the work. No, you don't. You can create new jobs for those people to do. So it's getting into what is MRR that's not software? 
And I think those are some interesting things that I'm thinking about. 100%. Yeah, this is something we really reveled in a lot with our company, the valet spot, the parking equipment business, because, yeah, man, it was just not exactly people who are putting in full days that you're competing against or, or using technology. Ge geographically, too. This could be a whole episode, but yeah, geographically, if you're in, in a foreign country, I can't compete there. Yeah. Like, I don't know the local, like, what cups to buy and where to go find certain people. What I did want to know is, how did you make your first million dollars? I sold cat furniture. <laughs> yeah. A concept we talk about a lot is the importance of finding a way that you can acquire customers repeatedly, effectively, and so you can get a margin at the end of it. And for us, that was SEO in 2007. We learned about SEO. We took our product background, which was an ability to make furniture of all types, and we started looking for Google keywords that we could rank for. And one of those was parking equipment. And so we started making parking equipment and it went really well. We actually sold that business in 2015. I don't think that was a great financial decision. So that's how we made our first million. But now I walk around every time I go out to dinner here in Austin and I see those parking products everywhere. And I think, man, I don't know. I've probably got out of the parking game a little too early. So what's the advice for someone who's just getting started and for someone who maybe has a business that's thinking about potentially exiting, what's the two piece of advice for them? That sounds like you had second opinion. Yeah, I have a lot of second thoughts. I spent a bunch of time speaking with founders about it. I wrote a whole book about it. It's called Before the Exit. And there's five different thought experiments in there. What's the thing that would have changed your mind? First off is I don't think it was like a good financial deal. And I don't think I really thought about what a good financial deal would look like, in part because the dollar figures were so big. A million dollars right? That looks good in the bank account. Why not take that? And you combine that, you contrast the million dollars, which is an amazing outcome, and it is, with the negative feelings that a lot of founders are feeling. I think we were doing $4 million a year. These are like a whole new skill set that you need to learn. To fire yourself, Seth Godin calls it the dip. There's multiple dips as you grow a business. And that one's particularly painful. Your good friend, Eamon, former CEO of AppSumo, calls this from turning from player to coach. You have to build up a team that can really run with you. And I think we were struggling with that. And you get bored with your business and you get shiny object syndrome and you think, wouldn't it be more fun to do this new thing that came out? And you're just selling this parking furniture. I'm not really passionate about it and all these kinds of ideas. And you think, I'll just cash out. And what's interesting is that there's a whole industry that understands this about founders. And it's cool. It's a way for us to achieve liquidity. But brokers and buyers and M&A firms, they know that these particular dips and these financial price points make sense. But if you run the math on getting three and a half times EBITDA plus your inventory back for such a business, when you invested seven years of your life to build it, I think there's a lot of other ways you can think through that, like bringing on and training an executive leadership team, like a GM or a partner. There's a lot of other things I think we could have done in retrospect. But a lot of these big decisions in life, they're emotional. And I think we just made an emotional decision. Like, we'll take the money, and then we'll go do something else. Where's the business today? How's it doing today? It's been a while since I checked in, but it's been doing better than when we sold it. Doing great. The buyer was really cool, much more talented than us in terms of professionalism. I think that's important, too, is sense of identity and legacy when you part with these things. I think it's actually really remarkable that you've held on to AppSumo for so long, and you seem to have an ambition to run it for many more years, which isn't common in the entrepreneurial world. And I think that's a story that should be told a little bit more often is the kind of pain that entrepreneurs suffer when they exit their baby. 
And then they have to rebuild and they have all the good memories of building the first thing, but they forget about that enormous amount of work that they put in to get that flywheel turning. Two pieces on there. One thing that you said about starting that I think is a really key point for a lot of other people who want to get a business going. Maybe they want it for just money for grocery bills. Maybe they want it for just being able to have some control and have something creative outlet. It was that you looked for opportunities of what people wanted that wasn't being fulfilled. So you said on Google, what are products that people are searching for that maybe aren't expensive that have some volume? And it was cats and valet. And that is what you went and then delivered. Yeah. And I think a lot of times people are doing the opposite. Hey, I got this thing. Let me go try to find people who have a problem. Yeah. And I like that you're like, no, who's got a problem that now we can just go create the solution. Yeah. Because I'm guessing instantly you guys probably got sales when you started putting that stuff online. First day, we had to pull down the site and go build the product. Yeah. In fact, I think it put it on the Mount Rushmore of most important things that you need to consider when you're starting a business. The biggest difference between, let's just talk the agency business model. I hang out with a lot of agency owners and I own one myself. The biggest difference between a seven and a six-figure agency for me, all things considered, is just demand. It's just straight up demand and understanding how to tap into that demand in a particular channel. Whatever that channel is for you to acquire customers, some people do it on TikTok or Twitter. Most people do things like go to events or they hang out in certain industry places. It's just demand. You'll be surprised if you just run a bunch of different concepts and put it out in front of markets that certain concepts just have a tailwind and other ones don't. That's demand. That's the feeling of demand. And so many people, especially smart people, struggle with that because they have great solutions for which there is no demand. (laughs) I mean, they're willing to spend a lot of time, a lot of money trying to get that to work, which I respect, but it's also there's other ways. Here's an example of how this can work. There's a principle that basically don't build a more complicated system that's not based on a simple system that's already working. So what a lot of, say, agencies will do is they'll say, hey, you own a plumbing company, and I know that if you use my funnel building and sales and marketing skills, and we installed a CRM and everything on top of your business that we would double it in a year and guarantee you shake hands, do the deal. And it doesn't work. But you spend a year with all the CRMs and all this kind of stuff is because there wasn't a system in place. Or you have to educate then the owner on why it's valuable. And this is what a lot of experts do and a lot of experts start agencies. And so I see this problem a lot, which is better to be an expert in just where the demand is and what that plumber wants and understands and can capitalize on importantly, because the system needs to ROI on your service in order for the natural growth in a company to happen. Business needs to get more business. And if you're constantly having to lecture people on why what you're doing is valuable, then you're going to have a tough time growing your agency. We call this like the knowledge gap versus the efficiency gap. If you're an expert, it's really tempting to want to solve a knowledge gap. Let me explain to you guys why it's typically more profitable to solve an efficiency gap to help a company who's already doing something, who already understands it, do it just a little bit better. Trillion percent. I generally think of behavior. Behavior change is hard. Enabling behavior is easy. If you're already a drinker, I just give you more alcohol. You just enable someone. If someone's at the gym, it's easy to get them to work out. Exactly. But saying, hey, you want to be healthy? Let's come to the gym and you're at home sitting at home. That's very hard to convince. 100%. You're better off solving the efficiency problem and then getting them to do more of the behavior they're already doing. And then as you build a war chest, you can go do passion projects. I would consider it a passion project to educate people and completely change their behavior. That's a passion project. That's not a great option for your first business, typically. You hear a lot of people talk about changing the world and stuff. When I think about the Noah Kagan methodology, 
I've been reading your stuff for a long time. It's about going out there and I consider it you're working the audience, you're working the customers directly, you're figuring out what they want, getting some discovery, and then you're asking them if they'll pay you to do something, right? And that to me, I'm like, that's an agency. I'm going to do something for you, right? I'm going to go perform a service. That's a proto agency. If you had to sit there and lecture them so that they'll then give you money, don't go that direction. (laughs) (laughs) How did it feel to have a million dollars in your account? Because I think that's a dream for a lot of people. It felt great and a little daunting. I didn't really do anything with it for a really long time. It was scary too. I didn't touch it. You don't want to screw it up. Yeah, it was kind of awe-inspiring too. It's also weird that not as much changes as you think will change, which fair enough, but also a lot changes too. You can cycle through the things that you can now freely think to do, and that's pretty empowering. That's exciting. Yeah, it was good. How'd it feel for you? Disappointing. Why? I do hate when people say it because it's like you don't have money and you're like, why don't you give it to me and I'll feel better. That's what I'd imagine if I heard someone else talking this way. But I think we think, oh, I'll be happier or life will be better or these things will happen. I literally thought like you get a parade. Like when you hit the mill, like your mom calls you and then I don't know, like the city gives you the key and no one gives a fuck. They just care about themselves. You know what? Maybe we're asking the wrong question because maybe the right question is something like, what did you do? differently. And I did a lot of things differently. I took my parents on these amazing vacations. For years, the family was like, what's up with Dan? Does he have a job or is he okay? (laughs) So I took my parents on fancy vacations to Europe. And I think, yeah, I'm okay. There was that. I wanted to move to Spain. And so I sent a picture of my bank account to the Spanish government and got a visa right away. And yeah, my life changed a lot because I stopped looking at the prices on menus when I ordered food at restaurants. When I say avoided it, I think that's what I mean is I really wanted to be able to order food and not care about how much it cost because I always cared about how much it cost. So stuff like that. I thought that was cool. I think I just felt unfulfilled too. Like I was like, oh, I'm sp- I thought this is going to give me purpose. This is going to like satisfy something. And it just doesn't. <laughs> it yeah. doesn't, which is good and bad. But I think the point is really figuring out how do you want to live and then how much money is that actually? I talk about my, my freedom number. I was living maybe a few thousand dollars a month max. At that point in my life, it was like 30 ish. I had a $550 a month rent. That's a superpower, by the way. I think, do that. especially if you can have the ability to do it, if you can have a low cost of living, such an advantage, because then you don't have as much pressure to have to make money. I mean, you're really good at this. There's other little, like a lot of things. So I tried to pick the best of every one of the best books that are back there. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, a lot of these have different stories to them. It was so funny. I just had a guy coming over who's a professional studio designer. And I actually was commenting how I think everyone has like the same backgrounds. Does everyone just get the same photo? Oh, I have a few books. Mm. I guess I have a neon thing of some sort. Yep. But it's okay. What would you do differently? You could put different books. That's one. I was just going to put my book over and over. It's just my (laughs) book. It's like my face. It's my book. There's also, you could put strange objects, like a samurai sword. Not that strange anymore, but... Not even that strange anymore. I know. It's just tough to uh, impress people. All the books are different. Some of the books are because I wanted to study what are the most popular books as I worked on my book. So what I did is I bought the most popular business books in the last 10 years. I bought about 20 of them, the physical print. I always thought it was interesting, like, what if you had to go teach at your alma mater? What books would you choose for the syllabus? What books would I choose for a syllabus? What are the things in college that I wish I would have learned better? Like I would have got a story like Steinbeck, 
or Million Miles in a Thousand Years or some book that's just go and live adventures. Here's a bunch of stories of cool adventures. Okay, so adventures. Yeah, just living. Million Miles in a Thousand Years by Donald Miller, number one. It's just like, how do you live an interesting life? And he talks about the friends, he talks about the experiences, talks about finding your career. And I think that's missing, number one. What about you? I saw uh, David Allen's Getting Things Done here. There's a lot that you're going to encounter here. Adventures, money-making opportunities, business ideas. But let's focus on the fundamentals. It's like the first day of football practice when you're doing burpees and running laps. It's get your fitness right. want to make sure that you can process an enormous amount of work. Because if you're sitting at $0 and you want to get to a million dollars, which is the next question, what stands between you and that is an enormous amount of work, 100%. And you might challenge that and say, well, some people are really smart and do it with less work. Well, they've got leverage. So they're able to have a system that helps them to identify leverage mm. and focus on it. So even if it's leveraged, so to speak, it could be leveraged by a system, money, partners, support, a helpful marketplace, whatever, you're still going to need to accomplish an incredible amount of work. So I would start with the fitness. I would start with Getting Things Done by David Allen. I think it's a great system. I still use it every day. It's one of these books that has enormous return when you implement it in your life. So there you go, David Allen. What's the premise? It was inspired so many of the productivity blogs. The four-hour work week sphere was obsessed with getting things done. And the concept was is like, well, if productivity can't be defined by, you know, I showed up at eight and I left at five, what are the new systems for knowledge workers, essentially? And David Allen identified that we suck at a lot of things. And so we need external systems to help us process. And one of them is RAM. So having multiple open loops in your mind makes it difficult to focus and press something to completion. And that's part of what productivity is about shipping, as Seth Godin would say, or execution. It helps to create an external system so you're not overtaxing your brain in terms of juggling multiple things. You're able to focus and produce. I think as your business gets more successful, often you can rely on systems like management principles and operations and stuff. But in the early days, you really have to produce. You have to create and ship. Maybe I would come up with some speech to the group and say, what's going to separate those of you who make a successful business in 10 years and those who don't? Is this fundamentally a function of how much work you can accomplish in the world? And there's a bunch of different ways to approach that. You can do it with money, with networking, whatever. But fundamentally, personal productivity is going to be a big factor. So start there. Generally in the book, there's one or two things that people all take away. James mm -hmm. Clear, Atomic Habits. 1% better, put your shoes out the night before. Yeah. The big idea from getting things done is inbox zero and process your inbox completely. One more big idea, which is your capture device, which inboxes mm. stands for a lot more things than just your email. So like, how do you capture all of your ideas? And it's, I can think of it like a wood chipper. You have your notes from your telephone. You have things that your friend told you. You have the shopping list, and then you have your email and your WhatsApps. How do you like put them through the wood chipper and then put them all where they need to be so that you don't have to think about it anymore. You think about it once. That's the big idea. My thought, it's not a business book. It's a book on just how to live. That's a cool idea. There's a prescriptive element to what you're talking about. You're not just saying any old kind of life. I think you're implying that the entrepreneurial life is a way of approaching life, that it's somehow different from just the average life, like a biblical life. And you're pointing out books that advocate adventure or represent adventure. I don't know the difference between a job and a career. It's kind of an interesting question, but that was part of what sucked about having a job. 
I've always hated riding the subway. And the reason is because you know exactly when you're going to arrive. There's a time, but there's something about an adventure that is exciting. And I think entrepreneurship represents that a little bit. I think it was also the fact that you can create your own adventure. And I don't think entrepreneurship is the only way for people. I think for some people, they love being a masseuse or they love being a programmer or they love being in retail. Like, they genuinely love it. Like, there's people who are career waiters, but they just genuinely love talking to people and interacting. And I think the book is really saying, hey, you can live your own interesting life. You have the ability to go do that, whether it's entrepreneurship or not. Okay. There's cutting hair, there's barbering, there's waiting, there's banking, and then there's entrepreneuring. What is that? Mm. If you didn't turn it into some big complicated thing that it was actually just like a job, what is the job of the entrepreneur? What would you say, Dan? Let's actually define it because I think if you were to Google around about it, you might get the impression that being successful is what entrepreneuring is about, right? Or making money. The problem with that, though, is a lot of people make money. So what is it about entrepreneuring as a thing to do that's different? And I heard this wonderful definition one time that stuck with me, which is that you basically find value that hasn't been properly captured by the marketplace, where you elevate things that are undervalued and you make them more valuable. So the popular example in the entrepreneurial world is Paul Graham's example of polishing up an old car. And the concept is a lot of people think that in order to get wealthy, you have to take it from somebody else or you have to trade amongst. But you can actually just with your elbow and some polish, like create money out of thin air because the car that's polished is more valuable than the car that's not polished. What do you see that could be elevated to a higher value? That's why I think there's a lot of overlap between entrepreneurship and artistry because you're like, my voice is undervalued because not enough people hear it or because I haven't structured my thoughts correctly or because I haven't written them down or expressed them with paint or in video or whatever. So I'm going to elevate the value of my point of view and the return will be money. But I think that's an interesting way to think about entrepreneurship, which is seeking value, which might not be efficiently traded and expressed in the marketplace and creating systems around that to deliver that value. Here's another way that it works. Like when we used to ride bikes in Spain, we would drink non-alcoholic beer after the ride and we'd be like, why don't the cafes in America sell non-alcoholic beer? That's what you want to drink after a ride. You're sick of drinking the sugary stuff. And I think that's why travel can often have a lot of overlap with entrepreneurship too, because it's like you discover value where other people aren't seeing it. Like the American marketplace isn't properly valuing the concept of drinking a non-alcoholic beer after a ride. Speaking of millions of dollars, Liquid Death, my God, what a cool company. Oh, man, I refuse to buy it if I'm honest. Why is that? Because I think it's just so stupid. <laughs> I'm like, it's just water. Maybe I'm actually jealous. Like you just put water instead of a plastic bottle into a can with cool branding. That's enough to make a billion dollar business. Yeah, I guess so. It's interesting, right? There's a lot of demand for that stuff. And do you feel an affinity? Because I think I feel envy. Maybe if I'm, if I'm honest, oh, wow, I just couldn't want it through in the can and put a logo on it. But it's what you said earlier. He polished it up. He entrepreneured it. How does it make you feel? Like, why did you buy that bottle? First off, the branding is awesome in this sparkling water space. It's adjacent to the non-alcoholic beer situation, which is there was this big gap of things of non-calorically or health-intense beverages that weren't water. It was like you were either drinking water or you're drinking some shit that was going to kill you. And that's basically how beverages worked for a very <laughs> long time. <laughs> and now there's this whole group of options in the middle of things with powders and 
potions and bubbles. And anyway, what was missing is something that is cool. Beer's cool. So there's something also self-referentially funny about it. I don't know. I, th- I think the brand is really cool. Who do you feel envious or jealous of? Or a business or a person, entrepreneur? I don't think that's my motivational system. I'm not a big envy person. I'm not sure why. I haven't really dug into that. I think it's probably obviously very useful if you want to compete in that way. I think that I'm not particularly competitive. I think my basketball coach in 11th grade pulled me aside and said, you would be a better basketball player if you were a little more competitive. <laughs> <laughs> I like how you even frame that as your operational system. I think it's in my system to be like hyper competitive at all times. And it's hard to calm on that or be like, oh, I could have done that. I'm a little bit more of a joiner. I want to like jump on the bandwagon. Oh, that's cool. What are y'all up to over there? Yeah. Send me your books. Give me your speeches. I'm curious as to what you guys are up to. And I think that's sort of represented in the sorts of businesses that I've gotten involved in too. By the way, one of the things I was thinking of with entrepreneurship, I think something that's like a little bit under talked about is just how much of the actions in the channel Mm. in terms of how you get customers. Nine out of 10 small businesses are really just about finding a channel to acquire customers and doing it in a cost-effective way that you can have a moat around for a, a number of years to get enough cash flow to basically do your next thing. It's funny. I thought you were going to go with that is that entrepreneurship is just being in the right place. I would say with a lot of the businesses that I've been a part of, it's just I observed something that I thought could be a lot bigger and it ended up being bigger. Like software, Absimo, started small, got super big. Social networks, super small, still going 20 years later. Personal finance, super small with Mint, got even bigger. And I did a lot of things that didn't work, but I think I was just in areas that like kept growing. So if I did okay, I would still do really well. I guess I was like, would you say that sparkling water market is growing? You're like, yeah, I think that has become a bigger market. And it's enormously growing. I think this is also a good lesson for everyone out there. If someone comes to you and they don't like your idea when you pitch it to them, doesn't mean it won't work. Because if someone came to you and be like, I'm going to take sparkling water, picture this. <laughs> Close your eyes. Okay, it's in a can. The marketing, how's the water taste? Don't worry about how it tastes. It's just, it's fucking got bubbles. Yeah. <laughs> but it looks like you're drinking a beer and you feel badass. You'd be like, sounds amazing. No, if someone pitched that to you, dude. And they're like, do you want to invest in this? You know what I'd ask? What did you do at your last job? Mm. I think that's one of the biggest predictors of business success in general. Essentially, what's your experience? A lot of people had this idea, but what's the background, I think, of the person who executed well? Yeah, I would challenge that. I don't know if it's their background or just like, who are they as a person? Because I do think sometimes that, oh, because I'm not an engineer, I can't invent something. And it's a lot of times non-engineers who can create things. I think engineers are smart, so they'll probably be inventing. But it's people who are not the expert that can also come up with something new. It could be both ways. I think it's just more what has been your behavior. Are you someone that follows through? Are you someone that will try it? Are you someone that has a good attitude about it? I do want people to succeed. I really want you to win. I want others to win. And I think what you said, you can upgrade your operating system. You can do new patches. You can do new updates. I think I can keep re-exploring, like, what is it about liquid debt? Am I jealous? Is it actually jealous? Like, why don't you buy it and support it and see how it makes you feel? Then you can make an informed decision. Yeah. So what does that mean, though, to update your operating system? Just re-question things, anything. If you're like, I don't like this person, or I don't want to do this stuff, or maybe sometimes, like, I drank Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Not excessively, and I felt a little guilty this morning. And I was like, who says I have to feel guilty? Oh, cool. I can actually like be mindful of my behaviors and potentially upgrade how I think about myself. And there's been updates that we can all keep doing in different areas. I like that. What is it that someone who listens to the show doesn't know about me? And I'm going to tell them something they don't know about you. I think the first thing that jumps off the page is 
your operational acumen as a daily operator. That doesn't come across on your content. I listen to the show. I watch the YouTube channel, big fan, and it's stuff you're passionate about. But then when I talk to you behind the scenes about what's going on, you're like, you say words I don't know what they mean. If you've been watching your channel recently, you're mostly interacting with hyper-wealthy people who have nice cars and homes and boats and stuff like that. But you do a really good job of making it cool to save money and to not spend money. And you actually live like that on a day-to-day basis because you're like (laughs) hanging out with these amazing people online, but you will seek the discount. You will stay in affordable hotel. We went on a trip last year and we like slept in these little beds, like this crappy hotel in New York City because it was close to where we were going, whatever. I think that's pretty cool that you stay close to the people in a way. You don't live this kind of distance lifestyle. You don't live in a bubble. No. I came outside my house this morning and I saw my Vespa and my Miata 2004. And I was like, dude, my life is awesome. (laughs) I swear (laughs) to God. I was just like, dude, I can't believe I have this. So cool. (laughs) The point though is just like, if you can have a low cost of living in general, and you can find work that you actually enjoy, which I've been fortunate to eventually get there at 30 to be like, oh, I can just promote deals. I love a deal. I love promotion. I love these tools. And then I can make content around these kind of things. And then that to me eventually has led to even more wealth. But it's like I found the thing I just was satisfied. So I don't really care how much more money is coming in or not. Yeah. I think it's cool in general to make it cool to save money. Like I have a friend who's wealthy and he did it at a young age and he like lives super cheap. But When he buys the cheaper thing, he always invests the difference in the stock market, especially dividend returning stocks. And you can imagine like the double joy of both getting a deal (laughs) and making an investment at the same time. I love this guy. It's cool. Ian, our mutual friend and my business partner, we came up with this concept called the entrepreneur mobile. And it's this idea of if you're going to start a business, you better not get a loan on a car. You better not be paying interest. Like, You need that capital to grow your lifestyle business, your future family wealth. You can't be going out to CarMax and getting some loan on a car. You got to drive a beater. But we made it cool. All our listeners submitted photos of their entrepreneur mobile. We want to see your fully paid off, fully depreciated automobile because your business isn't mature and you're not wealthy. You have no excuse uh, to have an auto loan. And it's cool to save money on your car and to invest it in your business. I think like it's very middle America, and we're in America, to want to buy this kind of lifestyle, whether it's like a designer brand or a designer vacation or whatever. I think it's important for especially founders in their first, say, five years to recognize that every dollar that goes that direction will prevent you from ultimately being able to do those things sustainably. And when you have the million dollars in your bank account like Noah has, you're not going to buy that stuff probably no. anyway. <laughs> we're wearing Rolexes and I would it on because you're here and I know Dan likes it. It gives me almost (laughs) no joy, like absolutely like neutral joy. And for there are other people out there like yourself and a few other friends that love it, love their watches. And so it's just also realizing like what gives joy and everybody's got their own different thing. Yeah. So I think it's it's finding that like I'm going to a wedding and designer clothing is expensive. Incredible. Margins are got to be great. I had no idea. I grew up as a Mervyn's guy. If you're in America, you know Mervyn's. It's like (laughs) the Kmart of clothes. That was fancy. And my mom just dressed us. I didn't know any better. Yeah. And so I bought Gucci shoes for this wedding, which I'm probably going to return. They have a good return policy. I know. (laughs) Don't please. (laughs) But it's like a thousand dollars. I'm like, dude, just give me shoes from like Amazon. I'll just draw the logo on it. (laughs) 
I'm at least trying it to see. I'm going to put them on at home, obviously, on the carpet and stuff. Keep the plastic on. And then, look, maybe if I like it, it's okay. <laughs> I think it's not a bad thing if you enjoy this stuff. It's not a bad thing. Th it's just finding the things you do actually. I think, like, as a ratio of your net worth is actually the functional mm. math you need to be doing. You just don't want to make sure it doesn't get in the way of being able to accomplish your financial outcomes. That's the main thing. So things that you may not know about Dan that I know because I've known you better. I think one of the things about Dan, I think you think deeply. You read wide and you think deep. And I think there's a lot in that. Yeah, thanks. Dan was, I would say, the first remote, independent, working content creators, almost period. Like you guys were like 2013. I, I think this is true that we were the first podcast about location independent, remote work with a physical goods business. You guys were like the originators. We're just the last still alive. Everybody else. I think that's a superpower in business. If you can just outlast, you can outwin almost anyone, if you can just outlast. And you guys, super early on with that, like now everyone's got a studio or they go to a studio and they have all these things, but you were doing it when their technology was like very basic. Yeah. That's something people don't know about you. You're a phenomenal route planner. Oh yeah. It's a lot harder than people think to actually have a lot of- I learned from the best. You take for granted like the nuances and the amount of things that you think about when you put into a route. I always appreciate that you do it. Cycling is a big world. It's a very exciting world. <laughs> It's a way to, to have male friendships in middle age, by the way, which is partially. <laughs> what are they called? Mammals? Mammals. Yeah. Middle aged men in Lycra. Mm, that's what we are. Yeah. It's awesome, actually. That's pretty awesome. Dude, I'm yeah. like super hyped. I just got a new Lycra. Um, you're always punctual. And that's something I like. It's really inspired me. I used to do this thing where someone would call me and I don't call back. I'm like, that's no, fine. Like, I told you I'll call you later. Like, later could be days mm. versus, no, you said you'd call me back. Call me back. Okay, I'll be on time, ah, 15 minutes, five minutes. And when I was a kid, my dad would do that to me where he would come like an hour late and he'd be like, dude, you're waiting, I'm waiting, what's the difference? And I'm like, what do you mean? I was waiting out here for you. But you were like always functional and that really has inspired me as a friend. All right. And our company, like a minute late, people text him like, hey, are you okay? I love that. And so that's been a cultural thing in AppSumo and myself that I'm proud of. Yeah, one of the things that people would infer about you is how professional you guys are. You guys are on rails take the whole minute thing and then apply it across the board to your board meetings, mm. to your monthly business reviews, to your team meetings, your all hands. Like it is impressive. It is a real operation. You just don't see a lot of that. The information out there is from people who don't have businesses teaching you business. Yeah. Or the people who are running those businesses aren't creating the content because they're running a business. Yeah. I've thought about it a lot in the last few years because we've been taking on operational inspiration from you guys and from a lot of other people in our ecosystem. And it's challenging. It's hard to get to where you guys are at, where you're on rails, where you've got a great recruiting team. You've got a great culture. You've got people coming in that are professional. You've got meetings that are effective. All these things, are they're not trivial. No, it's someone asked me today, this guy that made this ramen called Emi Ramen. Now everything now, it's like you make a protein version of it. Everything's like protein cookies, protein cereal, protein ice cream. They've done it for ramen. And he asked me, how did you go from one to 10? Zero to one is very hard. One to 10. If I could only give one advice for him, my one advice, get a CEO coach and then get feedback from the people around you regularly. That was it. Get someone who's already gone to the promised land or seen the promised land and then get the people around you actively to give you ongoing feedback. I like that. Now I have to learn how do you scale to these other levels. Yeah. And so failures. You said earlier in the show, I know we're kind of coming back. What are the businesses that failed? I don't know all this. I think this concept is interesting. Again, I was looking at Adventure Studios data points today because one of the businesses we run is a conference business. So 
We have people show up and give talks, essentially. And this talk was essentially about that funnel of like how many ideas turn into an MVP, mm. turn into product market fit, turn into a scaled million-dollar AR business. And the drop-off is enormous. And then here's the thing, an interesting data point that really jumped out at me, and he was evaluating 400 companies in a portfolio. And this is all Venture Studio stuff, mostly SaaS companies, but worse for us right now. And of the companies that achieved scale, so a million dollars ARR, only 30% of them were still growing. And it, it's just interesting, like, we're so hard on ourselves as founders. We take it personally, we just like our identities are really wrapped up in all the stuff we talked about selling earlier, how we can take a hit emotionally when we lose our baby and when we don't succeed at something, that hits hard too. A lot of the concepts you talk about, we have fear around even getting started in the first place. That's about our identity too. If this person says no, then it means... I suck somehow. Like we're really crossing a lot of wires and doing a lot of emotionally challenging things as founders. And I think that's really worth recognizing. And a lot of founders have this superpower. How can you get over this idea that you're going to fail most of the time? Like most of the things you care about doing, it's going to be crickets. You know? <laughs> Did you guys have a few examples that you tried and all the time? Yeah. So we just launched a product that had strong product market fit. And you talked about looking at the million dollars in the bank account. Having strong product market fit is a genuinely great feeling. If you've ever felt it, you put something out there in the world and it's, wow, tons of people buying it. So we launched a product called DC Black, which is essentially a community for high-level founders. And it was an amazing response. It was like, the market wants that demand. And our offer matched the demand in a way that the onboarding was amazing and it's going amazing. We launched the same product, same name, but with a different set of features and positioned differently 10 years ago. And it was complete crickets. Only two people purchased. We retooled it, changed the target market, changed the price point, changed the value proposition, represented it, and sold 60 in a matter of a week. This is a $5,000 product. So this is a very significant tester out there in the market. But the first time was embarrassing because I gave the offer in person in front of a bunch of people and tried to make the sales pitch and only two people bought. So it was pretty clear feedback that they didn't want that. No bueno. Yeah. What was different back then or what did you pitch differently? There was a bunch of things that were different. One was what it would take to qualify for the product. I think our qualification level was too high. One was the personnel involved is really important, especially in a community product and a coaching product. So I don't think we had the right team. And you're selling your team, so you had to present that well. And then the other is a piece of feedback that you actually gave us in the tooling up of the new one is it was too much work. And so it's interesting. You can have like in a community, the idea is that I think a lot of great communities is you can frame it up to yourself like, hey, it's expensive to go to this party or to fly to this thing or to meet these people. But you know what? Just one connection, just one conversation. I'm just one conversation away from that great idea. I had one conversation with you was, damn, dude, this sounds like a lot of freaking work. I'm paying you five grand and I got to do all the work. And that was great feedback. And so I think the earlier conception of the product, it just felt like a lot of work. Like I was putting people to work after they paid me a lot of money. And that's a little bit of what we talked about with the agency stuff. Sometimes when you're a founder, you know it's going to be a lot of work. You get into that explaining the product mode where you're, 
I'm very knowledgeable and I've talked to a hundred founders and I know it's going to be a ton of work. It's going to be a ton of work for you too, Noah. And that's just the way it is. And the customer's like, yeah, but I don't want that. So hundred percent. It's super interesting. It's a great podcast is what I was saying. Yeah. Cause I thought you had good examples. You had unique thoughts. You had unique theories. Thanks. I think my questions could have been a little bit more streamlined. I think I felt self-conscious saying I was envious, but I am or I was, but not anymore. At the end of the episode, you fixed me. I think that's interesting. I don't think you like live in envy, but you might get you motive spark. Yeah, I'm competitive. But also competitive. I, appreciate, I appreciate that you were like, hey, you don't always have to be competing, which then I'm thinking, oh, Dan's trying to beat me. That's what you're doing. <laughs> so you're trying to actually like get me to tone down that's my a stuff. judo move. Yeah. That's like some master chess stuff. It's interesting that how many times around the block we've been with each other, literally and figuratively, that it, it can be hard to zoom out with each other. For reference, we spend 10, I mean, we're, we should move in together, bro. I don't know why you're getting married, dude. <laughs> not to me. Like, I'll, I'll tell you, that's why I brought you on the show. First thing, I'm, <laughs> I'm saying you're not married. What I am curious, final question, and we do we have people uh, coming over for uh, yeah. poker night. How has being in a relationship affected your work? And if you were married to me, how much better would it be? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Let's see. Here's what it feels like. It feels like having a board member in the house, which we mm. don't have mm. a board. We have business coaches. We have really talented friends and stuff, but we don't really have a board. And now all of a sudden, I have someone vested in my future living in my house. And that's a really incredible feeling. Like, hey, man, you need to go out and be your best self. Can't phone it in this week. We're building something here. Mm. That's a really Really amazing feeling. And also, my partner is talented at business as well. So she is able to give me good feedback on a day to day basis. So, yeah, that's great. It's been awesome. Hell yeah. All right. Dan Andrews, you can check him out. Tropical MBA podcast. We'll plug it in the front and in the back. The fun of the episode, you can check out the Dynamite Circle. Is it dynamitecircle.com? Dynamitecircle.com. Yeah, dynamitecircle.com. Dan Andrews, you're the man. Oh, thanks good for chatting with you. That is your wrap. I hope you love the episode as much as we did making it for you. Go give Dan some love on Instagram and Twitter at Tropical MBA. You can also check out his podcast, Tropical MBA, which I highly recommend, and their online community, which is Dynamite Circle. Next, text your friend you love him. Yo, dog, let's take a trip together. Where are we gonna go? And before you go, tweet or Instagram me, slide in these DMs, at Noah Kagan. I love hearing from you guys what you think about this episode and how things are going for you in your own business journey. Also, if you're interested in my upcoming book, go to okdork.com, join my newsletter, and you will get early access to hearing about the book launch. Again, go to okdork.com, sign up for the newsletter to find out early access about my upcoming book called Million Dollar Weekend, which will help you change your life in 48 hours. Finally, a couple of shout outs to the amazing team. Thank you to Jason at podcasttech.com for doing so much and more lately on these podcasts and beyond. Thank you to Jeremy, Cam, Tommy and Sylvie from the Dork Team for all the magic y'all do. Have an educational day. What's your favorite, oof, spicy one, business book? <laughs> <laughs>